New incentives to open shelters across the county. For far too long, everyone has said, hey, we got to deal with homelessness until it comes to actually siting a facility and then people get awfully squeamish. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. With a strain on the grid, blackouts could be coming this summer. I guess we should just all be on the lookout and be prepared for possible repeats of what happened in 2020. We've got details on the Assembly District 80 primary and a new exhibit honoring the work of San Diego native Dave Stevens. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. <laughs> it's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. A new county initiative would pledge on-site homeless resources to any city in the region that builds new shelters. The proposal would provide new shelters with everything from behavioral health services to public benefits assistance, while the cities themselves would be on the hook for staffing and other operational costs. San Diego Board of Supervisors Chair Nathan Fletcher says the effort is intended to increase the number of shelters countywide to match the growing need for services. You know, for far too long... Everyone has said, hey, we got to deal with homelessness until it comes to actually siting a facility and then people get awfully squeamish. Um, and the reality is we can't do that. that. That can't be the way we go as a region. We have got to be willing to site places. We've got to address the situation we face on the streets. Joining me now with more is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. Great to be here. So how will this agreement work? What will the county pledge to new shelters in terms of resources? So the county's basically saying, you guys provide the space and we'll provide some services. Now, the services we're talking about are behavioral health services. So like mental health services, it could be uh, relating to like addiction treatment. Um, and they're also going to have, a, a, they'll provide a human services specialist. So that's somebody that can connect people to things like CalFresh or Medi-Cal, or even some cash assistance programs to try to help people in their current situation. So they're not providing everything. I think it's it's key to, to mention here that uh, cities that would want to sign on to this uh, general uh, MOU that the uh, county's putting out, they would still have to run the day-to-day shelter operations or maybe even find uh, like a third-party provider uh, to run those operations. And on the other hand, what will the cities themselves have to bring to the table? So the county's asking for um, some basic stuff from the city. So obviously they want a space, whatever they sort of choose here. Uh, there's a few things they need to do. The county wants them to have access to on-site showers, restroom and laundry. Uh, they have to provide three meals a day. Um, they also have to coordinate intake services. And they also have to, like I said earlier, run day-to-day shelter operations. So that's something that we know can be expensive. Some of the city of San Diego shelters, the contracts you know, for a 150 bed shelter can be up to $3 million a year to run. So there's definitely going to be some investment on the city side here, but the county's trying to, you know, give them some resources to kind of get the ball rolling here. Is the county offering any additional funding to help build and develop new shelters across the region? They do want to provide some more money. The Board of Supervisors is voting on a $10 million grant program. Um, And if that gets passed, the county is basically saying, we want to fund projects that are ready to go. So there's definitely going to be some investment on the city side here, but the county is trying to, you know, give them some resources to kind of get the ball rolling here. And when Chair Fletcher announced this proposal yesterday, he seemed to be addressing attitudes of nimbyism across the county when it comes to dedicating space for shelters. What can you tell us about this? 
Yeah, we heard some of that off of the top, you know, that everyone says that we need to deal with homelessness. We see uh, on the streets that it's not just happening in the city of San Diego. It's getting pushed out to some of the smaller cities, some of the suburbs. And he says, you know, a lot of people say we need to deal with this, but they don't necessarily want to deal with it, you know, maybe within their own city. But he thinks that those attitudes are are changing and particularly because the problem is becoming more visible. And so city leaders are sort of having to make some of these tough decisions that we're seeing in, in some cities that are already moving forward with their own shelter options. So that's why this money's being made available. That's why the county's making this MOU. Obviously, they can't do everything themselves, but they can try and encourage some of this. It's also worth noting too, Jade, that these services that the county uh, would be offering are services that they already provide at City of San Diego shelters. So all the bridge shelters there, they have benefit specialists that are trying to connect people, um, that are screening people for communicable diseases. So um, it's not out of the ordinary. They're just offering it to any city uh, who, who could build a shelter. What's been the response from city leaders across the county to this initiative? So Chair Fletcher, he met with city leaders from across the region on Monday, that was yesterday. Um, And in that meeting, he said that they didn't get any hard commitments yet, but he says that there's a number of cities that are already working on shelter plans and moving forward. He says like National City, Oceanside, Carlsbad, and Chula Vista are some of those cities that are right there on the bubble. But while that's good, you know, he's saying we need all of the cities to be doing that because homelessness is a regional issue. And something that we know that the annual homeless count reports coming out next week that will maybe show an increase in homelessness, a decrease. We're not really sure, but we did get a little bit of tidbit of information from that. We know that when these uh, volunteers are out walking the streets, talking to these unsheltered residents, you know, they're asking them where they're from. And they said up to 90% of people in any given city are from that community. So another reason why they say this initiative is key is because they want to keep people where they're at and talking with homeless providers. Like if they find somebody out in Lakeside, it's, you know, moving heaven and earth to try to get them to go to a shelter in downtown San Diego. But if they had a shelter in their community where they're from, you know, maybe where they became homeless, they think that they have a better opportunity to house them there or to start to get them in the process to find some sort of permanent supportive housing. And how is this proposal being received by service providers? I think service providers definitely recognize that while there is a great shelter program in the city of San Diego that they can bring people to and from out in the uh, other parts of the county, the unincorporated county, or even some of these smaller cities, those shelter opportunities are not there. There may be some winter shelters, but there's not a lot or at all of any of these year round shelters. Um, and so the providers that are out there, you know, they're helping people, but it would be nice if, you know, maybe instead of giving them like a hotel voucher um, that they can bring them to a shelter where they can get some of these services, they're all right there. So they're not having to drive somebody to the county building to try to get them on CalFresh benefits. Something else that's related to this and why they want shelters, Supervisor Joel Anderson was just recently out there in East County. There's a large homeless encampment that's on the border of like Santee, El Cajon, and the unincorporated county. And a lot of people who were there were saying, why can't we just move all these people out of here? Well, the county points to uh, some case law that says those who are homeless cannot be punished for sleeping outside on public property in the absence of adequate shelter alternatives. So what they're saying is we can't... even if they wanted to, they couldn't move people because they don't have any shelter options out there. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jade. If we have another hot, dry summer with major wildfires, prepare for blackouts. That's the word from California energy officials. Despite upgrades to the state's energy grid, officials say there's a potential for energy shortfalls that could lead to power outages. The multiple elements that could lead to shortages include smoke from wildfires blocking solar production, supply chain delays, and a decrease in hydroelectric power due to a low snowpack. Those problems and more could leave the state short of the energy capacity needed to avoid blackouts. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. And Rob, welcome to the program. Glad to be back. So back in the summer of 2020, California experienced some major blackouts, and the state electrical grid managers determined to beef up resources so that wouldn't happen again. Did they add capacity to the system? Yes, they have. They've added about 11,000 megawatts since 2021 uh, and since those 2020 blackouts. And among that, 11,000 megawatts includes about 4,500 megawatts of battery storage. So they have added some capacity. So why are we being warned about blackouts? 
a big reason why is weather related because we've had this drought that's been lasting and it's been persistent now for a few years. And that hot, dry weather is really making things very, very difficult for the people who manage the grid, especially during the summertime when you get around 5, 6 p.m. It's really, really difficult when you're trying to manage the grid at around 5, 6, 7 p.m. during the summertime because it's so hot, people are all cranking up their air conditioners. But then around 5, 6 p.m., the sun starts to go down and all that solar production is taken off the grid because you're not, you're not able to produce solar production when the sun goes down. And so the grid managers then have to try to find replacement for that solar production in real time. And that really puts a lot of strain on the grid and the grid managers. And in addition to that, what kinds of problems are they concerned about? Well, as you mentioned earlier, the hydro production is down because when you try to get hydroelectric production during the summertime because of the drought conditions. In fact, uh, Oroville Dam, which is one of the largest dams up in Northern California, one of the largest dams in the entire state, it actually shut down for the first time in its history last summer for a short period of time, for a number of months, as a matter of fact. And it's still very dry, still a lot of drought, so you're not going to get a whole lot of hydro production. On top of that, California imports about one-third of its megawattage from other states. And when other states are in very um, parched conditions, similar to California, they're not able to import that energy or that those megawatts over to California. And that puts a little bit more strain on California's system. And there are also supply chain problems that might contribute to power shortages. Isn't that right? Yeah, all pandemic related. In order to try to get that extra procurement online, you need to have that material sent over and there's supply chain problems that are causing problems as well. Also, it's a little bit complicated, but the U.S. Commerce Department is considering a petition from some solar panel manufacturers and that has delayed the production and the import of solar modules from places like China and Southeast Asia. And so that has slowed things down as well. How big of an energy shortfall are they concerned about? Would it be as bad as 2020? It could be if things go wrong. If if you get a whole this whole confluence of things that happened in 2020, like uh, this heat dome that covered not just California, but the entire West. And we're talking about 1,700 megawatts. Um, to give some perspective, that's about 5% of the total load that the uh, energy system handles during the summertime. And if things get really bad, they're saying that it couldn't just be 1,700 megawatts short. We could be four or 5,000 megawatts short. So I guess we should just all be on the lookout and be prepared for possible repeats of what happened in 2020. Now, California is still committed to getting an increasing amount of energy from renewables. And that's got to come under criticism if there are blackouts. What does the state say about that commitment? Late last week, there was a meeting that uh, a lot of us energy reporters like myself were invited to with California officials, and that came up. Representatives from Governor Gavin Newsom's administration said California is not going to turn back on the state's commitment to try to get to 100% derived electricity from renewable or carbon-free sources by 2045. So they say they're not going to amend that or change direction at this point. Now, the effort to shore up the state's energy grid has even led Governor Newsom to lobby for the continued operation of the Diablo nuclear plant. Is is that going to happen? Boy, that's a really good question. It's interesting because Governor Newsom brought that up as a possibility when he was talking to the LA Times editorial board about 10 days ago. And he said that California should at least consider maybe keeping Diablo open for a few more years. It's supposed to shut down by 2024-2025. Pacific Gas and Electric is a utility that operates that facility. They didn't really make a commitment one way or the other after after the governor's comments about that. So I would think that if they're going to try to ask for federal funds to keep that facility open, the deadline is May 19th for them to apply for it. So we're coming down to the stretch. So we'll know in the next week or 10 days at the most. And meanwhile, the cost of power is also expected to keep going up here in San Diego and across the state. 
Yeah, you know, Maureen, one of the things that really surprised me among this discussion that we had with the California energy officials is they talked about the increase, the potential and expected increase in rates. And normally that would be would have been my lead story on when I wrote this story late last week. But yeah, they're talking about double digit increases. And there was a report that the CPUC, the California Public Utilities Commission, did and came out about a year ago saying that they expected double-digit increases by 2030. The other day, they mentioned they moved those projections up to 2025. And it just gives everyone an idea. For San Diego Gas and Electric, the CPUC analysis estimated the average bill would rise from $171 per month, that's what we're at today, up to $213 per month by 2025. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. Rob, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Assembly District 80 is up for grabs this June 7th, not just once, but twice. KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer explains why. After Lorena Gonzalez stepped down from her Assembly District 80 seat in January, a battle to represent San Diego South Bay got underway. First, there was a special election primary on April 5th. No candidate got the majority vote, so now there's a runoff on June 7th. That's the same day as a separate general election for the same seat. Yes, it's confusing. There will be approximately 250,000 voters in the county that will have two assembly district contests on their ballot. San Diego County Registrar of Voters Cynthia Paz explains how this will work. One will be the general election for the 80th Assembly District for the remainder of the current term. So it's electing someone to fill the seat for the remainder of this current term through December of 2022. The second contest, a state assembly contest, will be for the new term beginning December 5th of 2022. So voters will vote twice, once for a candidate for June through December, and then again for a candidate to go on to the November general election. The November winner will then represent the district for the next two years. For the June through December term, Democrats Georgette Gomez and David Alvarez are the only two candidates competing head-to-head. Meanwhile, the standard election primary will include the two Democrats, as well as a pair of Republicans, Lincoln Picard and John Vogel Garcia. Southwestern College professor of political science Phil Sines says whoever wins the special election will technically run as an incumbent in the November general election. They both have terrific name recognition. They have the political machinery in place. I would say that those are other factors to be considered. But yes, I think um, there is an advantage, especially if they're able to use that time wisely and uh, generate enough positive publicity during that time period. To further complicate matters, people who lived in the 2011 district boundaries can vote for the special election candidates, but the standard election primary is only for those who live in the updated 2021 district boundaries, so some folks may not be able to vote for both. On the ballot for the 80th Assembly District, we have in parentheses special runoff to fill vacancy, which is separate from their regular, the primary election for the new term of the whatever assembly district they reside in now. Again, the top two vote-getters in the standard primary election this June will head to a November general election. 
Sign says even though the two Democrats are the most likely to be on the November ballot, it's the Republican and independent voters who may make a difference. Because there was 9,000 votes in the previous election that went to the one Republican that was running. So who's going to get those 9,000 votes? Uh, who's going to get the other Republican votes when they vote again in November? And it may come down to Republican voters deciding the election as much as it does for Democrats in that district. Now, ballots are on their way to voters. So the week of May 9th, you should expect to receive your official ballot in the mail. On that same day, we will have nearly 132 drop-off locations open across the county. Paz says the county will also have 219 voting centers open starting on Saturday, May 28th. Results in both contests will be certified 30 days after the June 7th election. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Of all the candidates running for office during primaries and general elections, voters often know the least about the judicial candidates. These races are nonpartisan. Judicial candidates are restricted from taking strong stands on issues that may come before the court, and they don't take part in debates. So voters are often left deciding by chance or by gender or even by the sound of the candidates' names. But the San Diego County Bar Association offers a bit more solid information on the judicial candidates. The bar has released evaluations of the candidates in the June primary. Joining me is San Diego County Bar Association President David Myshock. And David, welcome to the program. Maureen, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. As I said, voters are often left floundering when it comes to picking judges. Why don't we get more information about judicial candidates? Very little information is publicly available to voters to help them make an informed decision about who to elect to the bench. And that's probably simply because a lot of what they do is outside of public perception. And it's not so simple to evaluate a particular person and their abilities to be on the bench through a simple overview or something short of a more comprehensive analysis similar to what the County Bar Association does. And why does the Bar Association take it upon itself to evaluate the people who are running for judgeships? Why is that important? The San Diego County Bar Association conducts these evaluations as part of its commitment to serving not only the legal community, but the general public. While there are a number of organizations which publish information on candidates for various offices, what aren't normally covered are these for judicial elections. So we offer a way for the public to have some information. So as you said earlier, they're not making decisions based upon matters that aren't necessarily going to reflect who would best serve in these positions, which are going to be critical to us. Judges have the ability to make decisions that impact people before them in very personal ways and in very important ways. And so we want to make sure that the public has as much information about these people who may be impacting their daily lives. And how does this evaluation process work? I mean, what exactly is the committee evaluating? So since 1978, the San Diego County Bar Association has followed a comprehensive and confidential process to evaluate candidates based on 15 distinct criteria. These include things like bias and tolerance, caseload management, compassion and understanding, courtesy and patience, decisiveness, fairness and objectivity, just by way of example of some of these characteristics. And the committee meets to maintain integrity in the impartial assessment of any candidate. Then the committee does its research. Uh, It delves into the backgrounds of the candidates, both based on what they may offer themselves and through outreach to the legal community to get feedback on each of these candidates before arriving at an assessment regarding their qualifications to serve on the bench. And that assessment comes down to about five categories. Tell us what those five categories are. It's really four categories, then a fifth one that says we're unable to evaluate. But the four categories that you might get are exceptionally qualified, well-qualified, qualified and lacking qualifications. I will offer that to be even qualified to serve on the bench is significant because of all of those characteristics that we look at along the way and would expect in a member of our judiciary. 
but there are distinctions between the qualifications. The exceptionally qualified are those that are possessing exceptional professional ability, experience, competence, integrity, and or temperament to perform the judicial functions. The well-qualified have a very high level of those characteristics, and the qualified meet those standards that we are looking for in our judges. The evaluations that the bar releases are not endorsements, but I'm wondering why not endorse the person that you determine to be exceptionally qualified or to be the best candidate? By design, we don't want it to take the decision really out of voters' hands. We provide these evaluations along the way so that they can assess who it is that the professionals in the community believe would be fit to serve on the bench. In terms of where a particular candidate may fall in relation to to other ones, it's a real tough call for us to tell the public, you should pick this one person rather than another. And that's why we construct these evaluations where we evaluate the candidates independently of one another. It's not meant to be a comparison. And although there may be different levels of qualifications and evaluations that come out, those can be very close calls. Uh, The line can sometimes be very thin between a well-qualified and a qualified candidate, for example. Uh, We've got a process we follow and each candidate is put through the same evaluative process, but not as compared to other candidates in their race or any other candidate. The County Bar Association has evaluated the seven judicial candidates on the June primary. Where can voters find that information? Well, if you're looking for it directly from the San Diego County Bar Association, you can go to our webpage at sdcba.org. And on the homepage, there is a button to press that says Judicial Voting Guide. If you select that, that will lead you to the evaluations of the seven candidates. That sounds great. I've been speaking with the San Diego County Bar Association President, David Myshock. And David, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Really appreciate it. San Diego County is now seeking to overturn a verdict or get a new trial after the family of a man who died after a 2015 arrest in Santee was awarded $85 million by a jury. The civil suit filed against San Diego County alleged excessive force, negligence, and wrongful death in the arrest of 32-year-old Lucky Founcy. Joining me is Greg Moran, San Diego Union Tribune reporter covering criminal justice and legal affairs. Greg, welcome. So back in March, after a second trial, a jury found the county liable for the death of Lucky Founcy and awarded his family $85 million, the largest payout in the county's history. Remind us why deputies had an interaction with Founcy to begin with. What had happened was, and one of the many ironies that were sad elements of this case is that uh, Lucky Founcy had actually called uh, the sheriff's department himself. He was at a relative's home in uh, 2015. They were celebrating a birthday. And he, uh, a few days before he had been to the Coachella uh, Music Festival out in the desert and had taken a small amount of the drug ecstasy, it upset his uh, sleeping and his uh, you know, daily rhythms to the point where uh, when he was at this party a few days later, he was just very concerned about his own well-being. He's getting a little paranoid. And so he called the sheriff's department and asked them to come. He was under the delusion that he and his family were in danger. The sheriff's deputies arrived and the situation just spun out of control really quickly. They went into the home. uh, They talked to him a little bit. He was uh, uh, animated and kind of excited. They went to go handcuff him and they put a handcuff on one wrist and went to handcuff the other. And suddenly, uh, this was a a point of uh, dispute in the trials, um, one of the deputies fired a taser at him. Uh, And that then uh, kind of triggered uh, a very lengthy struggle that eventually involved close to a dozen sheriff's deputies with him. Hmm. And this has been a complicated case. A lot happened between the first federal trial in which the jury was deadlocked and the second where the county was found liable. How did lawyers for the Fountie family argue deputies were liable for Lucky's death? Well, this was always a case about excessive force, that the deputies uh, 
collectively and, and then individually just uh, had really overreacted both in tasering him. He was uh, struck with batons, beaten. They uh, sat on him or pressed down their weight on him at one point. And then he was put in uh, what are called maximum restraints. It's kind of the euphemism that uh, most people would recognize it as where your uh, hands and your ankles are, are bound together uh, to immobilize you. Um, and this went on for a long period of time. It, it, while they were struggling with him, um, the, the plaintiff's lawyer said that they were just inattentive to his health, his well-being. They didn't monitor, you know, was he no longer struggling? Was he having trouble breathing? Uh, and so forth. And they had just really argued that this was an excessive force case that led to his death and that not only were the individual deputies liable for that, but that the county and the sheriff's department also was because they had uh, do not and did not train their employees about how to apply restraints properly and how to monitor people and so forth. And you reported that in the second trial, uh, the judge in this case actually told jurors they could distrust the county's version of events on how deputies were trained and on Founsey's drug use. Uh, and from that, what was the biggest turning point in this case, you think? Well, I, I, that that was it. And, and I think it, it related to the judge's instructions there related to something that came up between the first and the second trial. So, you know, this case was filed back in 2015. It had been going on for seven years. And in a lot of the, the run-up to the trial, the lawyers for that family had asked, as, as plaintiff's lawyers always do, for all kinds of material from the sheriff's department about uh, training records and personnel records and, and, and all kinds of information about how uh, the sheriff's department uh, trains its deputies. And they got a lot of it. But in between the first and the second trial, they discovered in kind of an inadvertent way that video that the sheriff's department uh, made in 2007 that uh, is the training video that all deputies are use for how to apply maximum restraints, that it had never been turned over despite the legal obligation that the county had to provide these materials when asked for. Um, this is called a discovery violation. It, it's, uh, the discovery rules are there to, you know, to make a fair trial for everyone. Um, when the lawyers discovered this, uh, they brought it to the court's attention. They thought it was a terrible error on the part of the county. Uh, the judge was not happy. Uh, it's she was shocked by it. Uh, and uh, in, in a way to kind of, uh, frankly, penalize the county for that, uh, she instructed the jurors uh, several times throughout the case, not just at the end, uh, that because the county had not turned this over, um, they could infer, I suppose, that they were trying to hide something and that if, if that was the inference they, they could make, then they could distrust what the county said about uh, three areas. One, the training. Two, the, the records of uh, how deputies who are supposed to view this video every year uh, and then are tested on it. Um, how uh, some of those records had not been turned over to the defense, and a third issue related to the toxicology uh, tests um, that have been conducted on uh, Mr. Fancy. So, uh, you know, it was a very serious violation. The judge thought it was that, and it was so serious that uh, she believed that uh, the jury had to know it uh, and issued what's called a curative instruction or just sort of this warning that says, uh, look, you can distrust what they said because they weren't forthcoming and didn't fulfill their legal obligations before the trial. Hmm. So now lawyers for San Diego County are seeking to wipe out the $85 million jury award or get a new trial. On what grounds are they asking for this? Well, there are a lot. I mean, they, uh, their uh, moving papers were put in uh, uh, it listed all kinds of, you know, what they said, it's a long string of errors uh, by the judge, uh, uh, inappropriate arguments and questioning by the lawyers for the Fauci family. And, um, you, you know, ultimately, the conclusion and the verdict by the jury, they said, you know, was untethered from sort of the facts and the reality of the case. And so they, it's kind of like quite a kitchen sink motion, but I mean, they, 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 
really list all of these uh, issues that they say were uh, created a, a, a trial that was unfair to the county and led to a verdict that was excessive and not supported by the evidence. Uh, and among those grounds is they complain that the judge uh, ought not to have given these instructions uh, uh, about disbelieving the county's version of events and shouldn't have done it as often as she did. And then there's also an argument that uh, the amount of the money that was awarded here, the $85 million, was far in excess of uh, uh, similar kinds of cases or verdicts, and that it should be reduced by a significant amount. Um, you know, so they're looking either for uh, a, a new trial uh, based on uh, what they say are these errors by the judge or um, a reduction, a significant reduction in the, the $85 million amount that the jury awarded. Do you have a sense of why the award uh, was so much higher than other awards and, and, why, and what it says about accountability for law enforcement? You know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, the facts of this case are really egregious, frankly. I mean, this was a very, very violent struggle, um, you know, that not just occurred only in the home, but, you know, he was restrained and handcuffed restrained. He was uh, brought out of this home. And then after a number of minutes, an ambulance came. He was put into the ambulance, still restrained with his uh, uh, ankles and hands tied behind him. He was placed on the gurney. He was strapped to the gurney. Uh, there was a deputy who uh, accompanied him, a guy named Richard Fisher, who uh, had uh, was fired from the sheriff's department for other misconduct a number of years later. And on the ride to the hospital, uh, the evidence showed that, that Fisher you know, continued to restrain him. He forced his head down. He held his head down. And in what Fisher described under oath as on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the greatest amount of force, it was a nine out of 10. Uh, and he held him down um, for as long as it took to go to the hospital. So, uh, you know, the facts are egregious. Uh, I think uh, I didn't talk to any of the jurors, but I think the um, uh, not turning over the information about the training and so forth uh, uh, to the defense lawyers and the instructions by the judge on that played a role as well. Uh, and also, you know, Mr. Fauci was a young man. He was 32. He has two children and, and a widow. Um, part of the damage calculation here is, you know, how long he would have lived and the loss of companionship and love and so forth that both the widow and the children, you know, would experience. So, it's a big number, but I think, you know, the legitimate or the, the conclusion you can reach is the jurors thought that this was a a serious uh, and egregious breach of um, policing by the sheriff's department. So what's next in this case? So as you pointed out, the county has filed these uh, post-trial motions for uh, a new trial or a, a, something called judgment notwithstanding the verdict, uh, which is a rule for us anyway and reduce the amount. The plaintiffs just yesterday filed their responses to those, which said that there was nothing uh, warranting a new trial or a reduction in the award. Um, there'll be a hearing on these uh, in front of the same trial judge, Marilyn Huff, on uh, June 13th, I think it is. So, and then she'll issue a ruling uh, on, on both of these. But I think, you, you know, this eventually clearly is going to, even if there is a reduction in the in the verdict, you know, there's, I think the county is, is just going to continue to appeal these and try to, you know, whittle down this, this number as much as they can. So I think there's probably a pretty good chance it'll end up at the Ninth Circuit. That'll be another several years of litigation, really. Um, but, uh, you know, I suppose there's a, a chance for a settlement. Um, but, uh, you know, this has been going on for so long. Uh, I, I don't think that that's, that that's quite in the cards. I've been speaking with Greg Moran, San Diego Union Tribune reporter covering criminal justice and legal affairs. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. A survey released today reveals wage theft is still a big problem for more than half a million fast food workers in California. As KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports, more than eight in ten workers surveyed said employers have shorted them on their paychecks. 
A lot of people presume fast food workers are teenagers, making some extra cash. But in California, most are adult people of color, many immigrants with families and kids to feed and house. Mi nombre es María Bernal. Soy madre soltera de, de tres hijos. María Bernal is a single mother of three who works at a jack-in-the-box near Sacramento. Bernal says for years, she often worked double shifts of 14 hours a day. But she was paid for only about two-thirds of that time. Bernal says things got really difficult about two years ago when she fell behind on rent and the family was evicted. She says she and her kids slept in their car for about six months. She says the worst thing about that experience was living in constant fear somebody would break into the car while they were sleeping in it. Over the years, she estimates her employer has cheated her out of more than $86,000 in unpaid wages. She figured this out with help from union organizers, who are pushing for legislation to address what they say is a long-standing and pervasive problem in California. The impact of wage theft, it is criminal. David Huerta is president of Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, California. The union funds the Fight for 15 campaign, which issued the 2022 California Fast Food Wage Theft Survey. Bilingual outreach workers talk to more than 400 employees across the state. That's not a huge survey, but its findings mirror others. Among the facts, most of the employers shorting their employees are franchises. So when you visit a jack-in-the-box, for example, that restaurant is likely owned by somebody who's paying the company for representing the brand. And Huerta says that's a big part of the problem. It's the pecking order of the injustice that happens that starts from the very top with the corporations who then squeeze the franchisees, who then squeeze the fast food workers. Corporations like KFC or Taco Bell control a lot about how a franchise operates, from what the store looks like, to the hours, to the price of those meals you see advertised on TV. Mix and match the egg McMuffin, sausage McMuffin with egg, or bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. With any two for just $5? The report notes McDonald's made billions in profit during the pandemic because fast food didn't shut down. But store owners? Not so much, says Ken Jacobs, who chairs the UC Berkeley Labor Center. It becomes very difficult to run a, a profitable store and follow uh, labor and employment laws. Jacob says one thing franchisees can control is what they pay employees. That's what makes shaving paychecks an attractive option for employers looking to bolster slim profit margins, he says. And so who's the, the real responsible party there is the corporate headquarters. They're the ones who are setting the rules that are creating this situation. But who the law currently holds accountable is the store owner because they're the ones who are making those decisions on the ground. A bill pending in the state capitol would make California the first in the nation to shake that system up by making fast food corporations liable for violations at their franchises. AB 257, known as the Fast Recovery Act, passed the Assembly. Now it faces a battle in the Senate. David Huerta with the SEIU, which co-sponsored the bill, says lawmakers should support food workers who were considered essential just a few months ago. Fast food workers understand that they are victims of a system that's been, you know, cars that have been stacked against them, and they want a change. Industry lobbyists, like the International Franchise Association, say corporations don't own the individual franchise stores and don't make employment decisions there. They also say the survey's findings are misleading because of its small sample size of roughly 400 respondents. A spokesman for McDonald's says they increased wages for workers by 10% at company-owned restaurants in 2021, and that many of its franchises also raised wages. Jack in the Box, Subway, Taco Bell, and others did not return a request for comment on the bill or the report's findings. Neither did Maria Bernal's employer. That was KQED's Farida Javala Romero reporting for the California Report. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, 
Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Artist and former San Diego resident Dave Stevens is probably best known for creating The Rocketeer, a comic book that became a movie in 1991. But Stevens, who died in 2008, did much more than The Rocketeer. And the new Comic-Con Museum exhibit displays it all, from pages of original comic book art to one-of-a-kind artifacts from Stevens' personal collection. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Dave's sister, Jennifer Stevens Bauckham, who manages the Rocketeer Trust that provided all the exhibit materials. Most people probably remember Dave Stevens as the creator of The Rocketeer, first as a comic book and then as a 1991 film. And here's the trailer from that movie. An innocent discovery. I wouldn't touch that if I were you. A powerful weapon. I want that rocket. A deadly conspiracy. They're working for a Nazi agent. An extraordinary adventure. Jenny's in trouble. We've got the girl. Here he comes! The rocket will come to us. Oh, we're gonna get one pass again! Rocketeer. So most people probably remember that movie. But Jennifer, what do you remember best about your brother, Dave Stevens? Well, I mean, aside from just watching him produce, you know, paintings and different artwork when I was little, you know, he did a lot of art when he was still living at home with us because there's 16 years of difference between our in age uh, between us. Besides just being enamored with his art, he was so much fun. He was just a really, really so funny, always teasing me. Yeah, I I had a really good time with him as a big brother. Definitely. And what do you think of his personality came through in his art? Interestingly, when he created the Rocketeer comic book, he incorporated bulldogs into the comic book. And that was one of his absolute favorite things. He just was obsessed with bulldogs, English bulldogs. The funny, quirky part about that is in on one of the comic book pages, you know, the main character tries to feed him beef jerky, you know, alluding to what would happen after the dog ate beef jerky. Um, in one of the clips, you, you almost wouldn't notice it. But at the very bottom, uh, at the end of one of the chapters, the dog is lifting his leg on someone else's shoe. So, I mean, there's just a lot of, that is so Dave humor. It's absolutely his humor, just kind of childish. <laughs> he, he was the, the boy that never grew up, for sure. And Comic-Con now has an exhibit dedicated to him. And remind people of what Dave's connection was with Comic-Con, because he started going there just as a fan. Yeah, exactly. So we had moved to San Diego in 19, early 1972. I was maybe three months old um, and he was in high school still. And um, he I'm not sure how he found out about Comic-Con, if he knew about it uh, from living in Portland or how. But um, I believe 1972 was his first con and he. He started as a a geeky fanboy, super excited to see all of his comic book artist heroes. And then he started bringing his own portfolio to uh, for these artists to review. And it went on from there. He was a volunteer for a while. Um, He started uh, designing all the bat, not all, but he started designing some of the badges and some of the programs. Um, So he's had a, a long a long relationship with Comic-Con. And he really got to meet some mentors there who helped him with his career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the big ones was Jim Steranko. He obviously started out 
being somewhat mentored by him. But then over the decades, they became very close friends. You know, they were the best of friends. So you help run the Rocketeer Trust Fund, and you have partnered with the Comic-Con Museum to put together this exhibit. So what are some of the things that you have contributed that people can see there? Um, Almost 100% of it. Um, I know they, there's, uh, I don't, I loaned about 60 pieces of art plus all the personal effects, all the movie props. I think there's a couple of things that may show up at a later date from other collectors, uh, that will be on loan for the display, but, um, yeah, almost the entire thing is from me. And in terms of what kind of art you brought to the exhibit, I mean, what kind of went into the thought process of curating those pieces and what did you want represented of him in terms of the diversity of the art? My goal was to have the exhibit be biographical. So there are pieces that I loaned from when he was in elementary school, fifth or sixth grade of, you know, Spider-Man um, all the way through sometime in the 2000s. So towards the end of his career in life. So I wanted a very broad spectrum of, of art um, to show that Dave was not just known for the Rocketeer, but he had so much other you know, and and very varied styles and everything else. Yeah, I wanted people to see the breadth of his career. Yeah, there were a couple of pieces where the detail was almost photographic. And it was something that I didn't realize he had done that kind of style. So much of his stuff, you know, when I pull it out, it's like, man, there's just, there's not a single flaw. There's nothing wrong with this. How did he do this? There's no whiteout. There's no overpainting. It's just, I don't know how he did it perfectly the first time. It just amazes me. And and that's why I was so wanting to have an exhibit somewhere just so that people can go, oh my word, look at this. It's amazing. So yeah, I'm thrilled that it's finally being shown in public. Where it deserves to be seen, really. And what would you like people to kind of take away from the exhibit in terms of maybe learning something new about him or getting some insight into who he was beyond just being an artist? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, Dave was just a guy, you know, he had his flaws, he had his problems. The, the, the juxtaposition of that is that you didn't see it in his work. But I don't know that you'll get that out of the exhibit. I think you would have to, you know, maybe the documentary that's coming up hopefully this summer will kind of bookend the exhibit. But uh, I think just his diversity, I think just his simple diversity um, that he could do so many different things and be good at it. And do you remember anything specifically about the origin of the Rocketeer or him talking about it? Because that is such a memorable part of um, what he did. I know that it was a just kind of a filler at the back of another comic book. They just needed somebody to do a story. And that's where it just exploded. People loved it. They loved the art style. They loved the era. Um, And they got so much acclaim just from that first story that it was like, I think we have a thing here. (laughs) I think we should do something with this. So um, I believe it was after the second chapter, they did their own um, comic book. I think that's how quickly it happened. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your brother and about this new exhibit at the Comic-Con Museum. Yeah, I'm just beyond thrilled to be able to have this happen. So thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Jennifer Stevens Bauckham. Comic-Con Museum is currently hosting the exhibit Dave Stevens and the Rocketeer, Art for Arf's Sake. 